Good morning, everyone. Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed, indeed. That is just a, a wonderful tradition to uphold, a wonderful tradition that we have going at our house. I think I've shared this story with you before. Not growing up in a Christian household, a lot of these traditions were foreign to me as a, as a young Christian, and then coming to a formal church and someone told me, he is risen, and expecting the response, I had no idea. I knew I was supposed to say something, I just didn't know what, so I said, right on. Um, <laughs> So my kids love it. I didn't say, share this first hour because they're right there. I want to establish the right tradition. But so now at my house, it's he's risen right on. So um, who knows? Maybe we'll be unique that way and do that here at Christ Community. We'll see. Um, well, I think it's really appropriate to conclude our series uh, on the attributes of God. We've been going through a series really off and on since the summertime called Behold Your God, where we look at various characteristics of who God is. And because of that, uh, I've been thinking about three things this week. Uh, number one, like most of you, I've been thinking about Easter, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Number two, I've been thinking about this attribute, the sovereignty of God, that, that characteristic, that attribute of His that ensures that all of His other characteristics and attributes are meaningful and can be satisfied. And then number three, I've been thinking about uh, the sovereignty of God in relationship to Easter. How do these two come together? Uh, particularly because uh, on a given Easter morning, it's, it's not a secret that a lot of people will go to church that may not normally go to church. And so I thought early on Monday that if you're that kind of person, then chances are you've heard the Easter message uh, numerous times. And don't get me wrong, it's a great message, but you need to realize that we talk about other things at church too. So I thought I wanted to serve you well by doing something a little bit different than what you might normally get at an Easter service, by kind of continuing on what our regular diet of kind of hearing from God's Word it would be like at this church, but also for our regular attenders uh, and members, I want to serve you well, is that to keep some continuity with the preaching season that we have. Uh, so to do that, I think we need to establish first what do we mean by sovereignty, right? That's not a word we typically use in our culture. You don't hear that very often. Uh, so the way I'm going to do that, so you know what I mean by that word, is to use an illustration that's familiar to all of us Southern Californians. And that is, thinking about the sovereignty of God is kind of like thinking about what it takes to stop traffic, okay? So with me, if you will, you're on the 5 or the 405 driving along, and you see, as this happens the case, one of these gnarly wrecks on the freeway that they have to close several lanes, and it just gets gnarled up, and you often find a police officer directing the traffic. That officer has been designated the right to direct the traffic, if not entirely stop the traffic. So that police officer, if they feel necessary, can just stop the entire flow of traffic, stop a bus right in its tracks, right in the freeway. But now, if push came to shove, we both know that that police officer could really do very little if the bus decided to just keep on going anyway, right? So the right to stop a bus is similar but different to the power to stop a bus. Does it make sense? One has to do with authority, the other has to do with ability. When we talk about sovereignty, God's sovereignty, we are talking not just the right to do something, but the ability to do it as well. So when we say that God is sovereign, we are talking about He has the power and authority as well as the right and ability to do what He intends. Now, that means when people think about God, 
They typically, typically have a category for his sovereignty. They may not use that word, but in power, that he has the power and ability to do all kinds of things. He has the power to subdue all the armies of the earth. He has the power to raise up nations and cast them down. He has the power to stop the cosmos and when he wants to. They get that. But if God is sovereign, he also has the authority to do what he intends as well. So he has the right to do as he sees fit. He has the right to raise up nations and cast them down. He has the right to pronounce innocent and pronounce guilt. He has the right to make you happy. He has the right to make you have a hard life and a yappy life, right? He has the right to do all these things. He even has the right to do things we don't want him to do or even like, right? And it gets even more shocking. He has the right to do these things without getting your permission or my permission, that's what it means to be sovereign. You have the power and ability, but you also have the authority and right as well. As a sovereign God, He has the power and ability, the authority and the right to upset the natural order of this world. He has the authority and the ability to defy human purposes. He has the ability and authority to upset and overturn our expectations of Him. We know this because it's already happened. It's called Easter Sunday. In this one singular event, God displayed His sovereignty in a way that demonstrated His sovereignty over the natural order of things, that demonstrated His sovereignty over the human purposes that those of even defy Him, and His sovereignty of the expectations over people who believe Him. All this happened in consistency through our series of all of His attributes God displayed His sovereignty in the resurrection in Jesus Christ in a way that was consistent with His holiness, His goodness, His grace, and His wrath. And so we conclude this morning our series on Behold Your God, thinking about this last attribute of God, God's sovereignty in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in three significant ways. We see God's sovereignty over the natural laws that govern His world. We see God's sovereignty over the purposes of men that defy His will. And we see God's sovereignty over the expectation of people who believe His Word. We'll look at those one at a time. Now, to be clear, the Bible is very clear that God has established the creation so that His world is governed in a way that actually reflects His character. You think we realize that? That this world is designed in such a way that God has established a natural order in such a way that it actually displays His character. Passages like Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, says that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. That's one of His attributes. Psalm 104, verses 10 through 30, so 20 verses that describe in detail how all the creation functions exactly as God intends it to. It's a phenomenal passage. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, you preserve them all, speaking of the heavens and the seas, and they worship you. It gets even more amazing in Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament, verses 26 to 28, it says that all men and nations are exactly where God's, God intends them to be so that maximum knowledge of His character can be known. This is a phenomenal passage. We could preach on that alone. That the book of Acts, God's Word says that every human being and every nation that has ever been is exactly where God intends it to be for the purpose of making His character maximally known to the world. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, all creation is made by Him 
and it's held together by Him. Hebrews 1.3 says something very similar to that. Jesus Christ holds the universe together by the word of His power. You see, these verses and many more make it abundantly clear that creation and therefore our existence, human existence, is not some accident or some chance happening, but part of an ordered way that the universe in totality is to display the wonders of God. With Genesis 1 and 2 saying that the creation of humanity, you and I, is the pinnacle of, that all, of all that created work. And just as any artist or composer or sculptor is not subject to the very thing, their creation, neither is God subject to the natural laws that He created to order His universe. And so we read all throughout Scripture amazing accounts of cosmic proportion in Joshua chapter 10 where God stops the sun for an entire day because He desires to do so. Or these earth-shattering miracles like Exodus 14 where God splits the Red Sea apart. So it's not just these massive, amazing things, but even down to amazing, what might seem insignificant, like God changing the properties of minerals like iron to behave in different ways so that His purposes can be accomplished as Second Kings chapter 6 records for us. And of course, mind-blowing accounts of people rising from the dead, right? John chapter 11, 2 Kings 4. God is not constrained by the creation since He is its creator. And the most spectacular display of this freedom, of this sovereignty over the natural order of things is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It'll be on the screens behind me. It's simply amazing. Jesus, in speaking of His own death and resurrection, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Did you realize Jesus lays His life down and Jesus raises it back up? Astounding. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, in each instance where the Bible records man or woman or boy or girl coming back from the dead, we really wouldn't call those resurrections, would we? We would just call them resuscitations because at some point, every one of those individuals faced the specter of death once again. Jesus, however, was completely different. Jesus was truly resurrected from the dead because He did not face the grave ever again. As a matter of fact, He conquered the grave. Death is the natural law that scares everyone in a fallen world, rightly so. Death is the natural order of things that terrifies us. Even Google yeah, we like Google. They're even afraid of death. So a few years ago, they started, the Calico, they started Calico, the California Life Company, and their objective was to somehow figure out a way to conquer death. Listen to an article from Business Insider just a couple years ago. They write this, the quest for eternal life goes back for thousands of years with mostly unimpressive results. So I guess they, they are giving a tip of the hat to Jesus because they said it's mostly unimpressive, but Jesus did come back, so at least they're acknowledging that one. These tech billionaires want to defeat death, the article says. They, don't, they, just don't have, they don't just have the money at their disposal. They have access to modern medicine, genetics, 
efforts to map the human brain, and computers that can process quantities of information so huge they've never even been conceived of before. Their objective is to use the tools of technology, the chips, the software program, algorithms, the big data they use in creating an information revolution to understand and upgrade what they consider to be the most complicated piece of machinery in existence, the human body. Google wants to defeat the great enemy of humanity, which is death. Well, I hate to say this, as cool as I think that project is, we know it will fail. It will never succeed. Because the Bible tells us that the origin of death is not just the degenerating cellular material. It's not just heart failure or cancer or natural causes. Those can be contributing factors. But the Bible tells us those are just the presenting problem of the true cause. Death, according to Genesis chapter 3 and Romans 5, is the result of sin. Let me read you Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So unless Google can figure a way to deal with the problem of sin, they'll never deal with the problem of death. But Google doesn't have to because somebody already did. The one man that overturned sin and thence conquered death was Jesus Christ, and His resurrection from the dead is the factual, historical evidence never to have been disproved. So God displayed His sovereignty over the natural laws that govern this world by defeating the great enemy of humanity, death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not just in defeating death and over the natural laws that God displays His humanity in Christ's resurrection. He also displays His sovereignty over the purposes of men that defy His will. You see, it's amazing when you think about the Bible tells us that all of creation bows to its Creator. Mark chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, sickness flees at Jesus' command. Mark chapter 4, the oceans obey Jesus' voice. Mark chapter 5, demons shudder in Jesus' presence. Later in Mark 5, we see that death itself is no match for Jesus. It is clear from disease to death and nature itself, it all bows the knees to its Creator. But here's the shocking reality. Only humanity, the pinnacle of creation, only humanity is known to defy, disobey, and rebel against its Creator. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 26, John chapter 5, John chapter 7, John chapter 8 records how humanity consistently and constantly plots against Him, seeks to entangle Him, arrests Him, and wants to kill its Creator. But here's the shocker. Here is the shocker. The sovereignty of God takes into account the rebelliousness in man's heart and makes it serve His purposes and not their own. And the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best example of this. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the church really exploded onto the scene, and Peter's preaching to this crowd of the events that they're watching take place, and he says this in verse 22, "'Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst.'" 
as you yourselves fully know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, they thought they were ridding themselves of their greatest opponent. They thought they were ridding themselves of the usurper of Israel. They thought they were getting rid of the problem. All the while, they played right into the hands of a sovereign God in doing His bidding for Him. God is sovereign, so sovereign, that even our defying Him, He can take to make serve His purposes. That's one thing for God to upset the natural order of things. It's a whole nother thing when God wants to upset our order of things, isn't it? Friends, history is full of men and women who were challenged and found that the sovereignty of God, and in particular the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is an anvil that has broken thousands of hammers of human disbelief and doubt. And it started very early on not just two years after Jesus Himself was crucified and raised again was the opposition heavy and hard against the resurrection in a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who hated this doctrine of the resurrection, didn't, couldn't stand this doctrine of the resurrection and this gospel message spreading, did everything He could in His power to stop it. Arrested believers had them imprisoned and oversaw and authorized their execution until he met the resurrected Christ himself in Acts chapter 9, on his way to another city with paperwork authorizing him to continue on this reign of tyranny. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the apostle, the strongest proponent for the resurrection message. Centuries later, John Newton there's a picture of John. Well, that's actually an actor named Albert Finney playing John Newton. But John Newton was one of the most loved and well-known figures of England's Christian history. What most people don't know is that John Newton was a former slave trader. John called himself an old African blasphemer because he spent years of his life profiting off the slave trade. This man who against all odds converted to Christ, although he spent his entire youth denouncing the very Christ he came to worship, ended up composing in what I find is a, a wonderful irony and the sense of humor of God, probably one of the most beloved hymns in African-American churches, Amazing Grace. And Newton became a forceful leader in the abolition movement in England. A century after John Newton, the 19th century, a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf, he was the, one of the co-founders of the Harvard School of Law. He authored one of the most renowned legal works in the 19th century called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. Greenleaf was an agnostic, but he became a believer when he was challenged by his students to use the very laws and very rules of evidence of jurisprudence that helped establish the Harvard Law School. His students challenged him to use those same standards and metrics on the gospel narratives of the resurrection. Greenleaf, thinking that this was a joke, obliged and came to the inevitable conclusion that the gospel accounts of the resurrection had to be true by those very standards that we use in court. He published his findings in a book the testimony of the evangelists examined by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. In the 19th century, this was mind-blowing for people to see this. Now, you might think, well, that was the 19th century. That was a long time ago. Things have changed. Certainly, we now know better. Just a hundred years later, another law student from Yale Law School and an investigative journalist from the Chicago Tribune, one of their youngest, one of their brightest, 
to denounce, to, to shake his wife's newfound faith. Lee Strobel went on an investigative, applied all of his skills as an investigative journalist to the resurrection accounts to show his wife her faith was misfounded, it was fable and myth, good to feel good, but not to base your life upon. And when he could not find evidence to the contrary, he was broken and converted and became a believer. I encourage you to see the movie about his life. It's called The Case for Christ. Better yet, read the book by the same title. None of these men intended to convert. As a matter of fact, each of these men had their motives why they should not convert to the resurrection and the understanding of Jesus Christ. Their careers, prestige, lifestyle choices were on the line. But as each of these men found, you cannot seriously or honestly engage the question of the resurrection of Jesus Christ without coming to the conclusion, whether you like it or not, that it is one of the most well-attested to historical facts in recorded history. You might recall with me, this was really big in the mid to late 90s, but every year around this time of year, if you went to the supermarket, you know, you have on the end cap by the cash registers, they have a bunch of magazines, inevitably you would always see on the cover of Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine, uh, the historical Jesus, the search for the real Jesus, the Jesus Seminar, articles talking about Dominic Cross and all these theologians from the Claremont School of Theology, all saying that we now know that the resurrection was a myth, it didn't really happen, and that this all is just kind of a nice feel-good story. Every year. You haven't seen those covers lately. Now, most of you don't even notice because they stop printing these kinds of things because they hope we forget. Here's what's happened. The popular media has finally recognized, it kind of took a while to trickle down, that professional scholars no longer debate this issue. There is no debate amongst professional scholars, archaeologists, and historians that the resurrection is an actual, factual, historical reality. Now, you can debate the implications of it, but you can't debate the event, is what they say. There is no way to deny the historicity and the factuality that a man from Galilee was crucified and was attested to have been raised again three days later amongst the most opposing government for every reason not to proclaim this message. It exploded like wildfire and spread throughout the entire known world. So, this month, I went to check what's on Time in Newsweek magazine, see what they're up to. On the cover of Time magazine, I think her name's Sarah Sandberg from uh, Facebook, she's talking about how to overcome grief, and on the cover of Newsweek is why the Turkish referendum is important to us. No retraction about those dec that decade-long tirade against the resurrection, they just hope we forget. But you can't honestly engage with the facts and deny that the resurrection took place. But as Christians who believe in this and the historicity of it and the factuality of it, we want to give every opportunity to say, well, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then He would have to be a fool or a liar. To say the things He said, to teach the things He did without being so, without coming back from the grave, He'd have to be a liar or a fool. As a matter of fact, this is the very argument that's Paul the Apostle, who I just mentioned, made in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 19. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, a way to say died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then no amount of personal disbelief or intellectual doubt will matter because you must must reconcile what you believe or don't believe with the sovereignty of God and the historical facts. So the resurrection of Christ displays God's sovereignty over the natural order. People don't come back from the dead, yet Jesus did. The resurrection of Christ displays God's sovereignty over those who defy Him, who thought they were doing what they wanted only to find out they were doing what God wanted them to do in bringing His redemptive plan forward. Finally, the sovereignty of God and the resurrection of Christ over the expectations of His own people who believe His Word. Now, you might ask, I can see why it's important to, to see how God is sovereign over the creation. If He's the Creator, He should be sovereign over the creation. I see why it's important to show that He's sovereign even those who are in opposition to Him. But why is it important to talk about His sovereignty over people who actually believe His Word? You would think that that's a given. Why is that necessary? Because God is always more surprising, always more radical, and always more sovereign than we conceive. I'm going to take you to John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 11, where we see a resurrection narrative, not Jesus' resurrection, mind you, but one of His friends. In John chapter 11, verse 21 to 26, Jesus is visiting the tomb of His dear friend Lazarus, who had died four days earlier. And as in typical Jewish custom, they're continuing to mourn for him. Jesus shows up on the scene, and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, run to Jesus. And this is where we pick it up in verse 21 of John 11. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said, I know that He will rise again. In the resurrection, on the last day, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, and everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, in verse 22, Martha rightly expresses her faith in Jesus and in the resurrection from the dead in verse 24, something that Jesus Himself affirmed and taught. Jesus does not merely say that He will bring about the resurrection or that He will be the cause of the resurrection, although that is, those are both true, but He says something much stronger. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am life resurrection from the dead and genuine fellowship, eternal fellowship with God are so closely tied to Jesus that they are embodied in Him and can only be found in relationship with Him. So often as Christians, we can think that Jesus, this Christianity, is the way to a meaningful and fulfilling life, but Jesus has always been saying something so much more stronger. Jesus is saying, I am meaning. I am fulfillment. I am the resurrection and the life. He says that those who believe in Him will never die. Do we believe what Jesus is actually saying? That those who believe in Him will never die. 
reason I ask that is we have to realize that, yes, one day our physical bodies will stop. So what does he mean? We see right here, he says, look, if you're thinking about your physical body, you're going to get that back. Your physical body does not mean that you actually have life. You misunderstand what life actually is. If the only way you gauge it is by how this is doing. The person who believes in me will never die. Through faith in Christ, we are put in a relationship with the giver of life himself. The sovereign God, as whom we learned, controls all natural laws, who alone is self-sufficient, who alone gives life, who alone is holy, good, gracious, and glorious. So, Christian, don't get caught up with life defined by the things of this world because the things of this world cannot define life. That only Jesus, evidenced by His resurrection, can provide. So, when we say that God is sovereign, when we say the sovereignty of God, we are saying a whole lot. We mean a whole lot. What we mean to say that He alone has not just power and ability, but authority and right to do all that He pleases. Now, here's the thing that can be a little bit scary for us. We're not used to sovereignty, are we? There isn't a sovereign thing in our lives. After all, we're Americans. We, we cast off sovereign monarchs. We cast off this idea that people determine our destiny. We vote the way we want. We vote with our feet. We vote at the ballot box. We control our own destinies. No sovereignty over us. That's to our disadvantage in some ways. But with good reason, we see the abuse of authority. We see the abuse of power. We have expressions that say, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So, sovereignty is not a part of our lives. So, when we come to understand and read in Scripture that God is sovereign, how do we make sense of that? As I said, He has the right to make you happy. He has the right to make your life easy. He has the right to make your life hard. And He has the right to do it without asking your permission. That's what it means to have a sovereign God. On the one hand, that should get us encouraged and excited that that means He has all the authority He needs to do whatever He's doing, and if you've been part of our series, you know He's good and never changes, so it's always going to be good all the time, but still it's hard to imagine that, which is why I think John 13.3 is so powerful. John 13.3 takes place the night before, just literally hours before He's betrayed and taken to be beaten, flogged, and questioned, and then crucified. It's amazing how really from John 13 to the rest of the book of John is all about just that last few moments of Jesus' life. Depending on your translation, it says something like this, when all authority and power were given to Jesus, His sovereignty, all authority, power to do what He wants as He pleases, what did He do? He got up, He put a towel around His waist, and He began to wash the disciples' feet like a servant absolute sovereignty, this absolute sovereign being encapsulated in absolute love that brings to bear all this authority and power and ability and right for the benefit of those that sovereignty is exercised over. This is the God we behold. This is the God we worship at Easter. This is the God that the Bible and the Gospels constantly hold out for humanity. Why would you trust in anything else? Nothing else has that kind of sovereignty. Nothing else encapsulates that kind of love. 
Why would we trust in anything else other than a sovereign God? And that's what Easter confronts us with every year. I hope as you go and celebrate with your family and friends, the blessings and goodness of God in those family and friends, that you would remember that those are possible because we serve a God as we've learned that is good and gracious, holy and just and sovereign to make it all come to pass. Let's pray. Father, this day reminds us, it reminds us of how amazing You are. In the resurrection of Christ, You displayed Your sovereignty over laws of nature that seem immutable to us, death conquered. The resurrection of Christ displays to us that no man's plans to try and thwart You can come to pass. The resurrection of Christ reminds us that You often and always exceed our expectations of Your graciousness to us. Father, we pray that's just not something that we think about Easter, but all day long. Lord, in these eight weeks that we've tried to think about what kind of God You are, it has been mind-blowing. We thank You that You are holy, just, wrathful, good, unchanging, and sovereign. And we thank You for all these things through the name of Christ who rose today. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.